Cracks and Pomo will be releasing a zine featuring a variety of writers, some of whom have been featured on this podcast. To order a copy or to make a contribution to our funds, please DM at Cracks and Pomo. So we are back at Cracks and Postmodernity. We have Jordan Castro, who is a writer from Cleveland, originally, correct? Yeah. And he recently published the book called The Novelist, which came out last year. Um, and we're very excited to have Jordan on. So Jordan, welcome. Thanks for having me. So um, first thing I'm going to say about The Novelist, I first thing is that everyone should get it because it's... It's a lot of fun, a lot of laughs, but also really makes you think. For me personally, it's uh, it's really interesting to hear somebody writing about the life of a writer in the way that you do, because you're kind of looking, I don't know, very introspectively, very like transparently at what goes on in the lifestyle of a writer. And like personally, again, like I, I related to it very much because over the last year, I spent most of my time trying to delve into my own writing. And I found so many, uh, so many recognizable things from the social media addiction, getting sidetracked from writing, to several other things we'll bring up. But I would say first off, like why, why write a novel about a novelist? Hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think I sort of didn't intend intend to at first. You know, I had been working on another novel, and I was like waking up every morning and like working on this novel that was horrible you know it was like it was like this total this totally like debasing and dispiriting you know thing where i would wake up early um before before nicola would wake up and i would like you know work for a few hours before my day started on something um that just like wasn't getting any better and i like didn't know what i was doing and like half the time i would like be scrolling twitter for you know a large portion of that um and i think like it started i started writing this or at least um writing about about writing almost as like a a way to um, just kind of uh, explore what was like actually happening, you know, where it's like I had an idea of what, how I was going to spend my morning or about, um, um, you know, what I was doing when I was sitting down in front of my computer, you know, I'm sitting down to write, but in reality, like, it, you know, I was doing all kinds of things. Like I was making tea, I was using the internet, I was getting up and eating, I was going to the, you know, I was texting, whatever it was, like there's all kinds of things happening when I was quote unquote writing that like had nothing to do with writing. Most of the time I wasn't even writing. So, I just wanted to kind of play around with that. Yeah, and like what's really interesting is that I find myself doing the same thing when I'm having one of those writing days that, like, yeah, I get distracted by Twitter and Instagram, and then I make myself tea, and then I eat, and then I have to go to the bathroom. But I don't know if it's a writer thing, or maybe all of us do this in a way, but all of those mundane, like, things within our routine take on this um, a meaning that's greater than themselves. It's like there's something there's something present within it all. And you end up saying this later on in the novel that like you have a sense that there's something sacred about the everyday. Um, and even, yeah, like even the dumb stuff like scrolling through Twitter and like closing the app and then opening it again and then all the way to the poop scenes. Like, I don't know. So what can you say about that? Like why, or why is it, or like what is it that you perceive within those boring everyday things that like makes it worth writing in so much detail about? 
I was, I, I, I uh, last week I visited a class at the new school. Okay. And, um, yeah. And the, uh, professor like asked me something similar and I was like going to talk about how in Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search mm-hmm. for Meaning, um, you know, he has this idea that like the meaning of life is not like one big overarching thing, but it's yeah. sort of like latent in every, in every small decision that you make, you know, the meaning of my life is, 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 you know, exists each time I make a decision. You know, and, and then the sort of bigger picture thing is is comprised of those little little decisions. Um, but like before I could say any of that, I was like, there's just you know, I was like, maybe you guys have read Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And the professor interrupted me and was like, That book I just thought was so sad. Like the Holocaust was so sad. And then like the students in the class were like the Holocaust was like so sad, and they were just like saying the Holocaust was sad, like oh, yes. for like a couple of minutes. It was like uh, maybe it was just like a minute and a half or something like yeah. that. Um, but I just thought it was like uh, it was also like eight in the morning, um, okay. so I was like waking up, and uh, um, I don't know. I just thought it was kind of like uh, kind of funny, you know, just kind of like interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is it is sad, obviously, but like um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Victor Frankl. I don't know. I mean. But that's kind of the point. Like, the Holocaust is sad, but there's something more within the sadness, I guess. Or the fact that you're sad is a sign that, like, you're, um, I mean, this is an Aquinas thing, that sadness is the awareness of an absent good. Mm. So, like, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. You can choose to take a nihilistic um, approach to, like, the feeling of sadness, but it could also be, like, okay, but there's a sign that I want something greater um, yeah one of the one of the things one of the things to, like to yeah, there's a there's a couple of things there like one um there you know victor frankl it's sort of like a cliche or like almost like talk about this book but it is it is true that like you know even in the in the camps there were people making the decision to like share their scraps of bread with others or to like sing or something like that and to me that that is prof- like that is profound and it is beautiful um but then there's the other thing that you're talking about which is like um you know you can only um, you know, you, yeah, you, you can only know, you know, if I say something is bad or something is sad, um, you know, uh, it's because there's, I have some transcendent good standard to yeah. compare it with or whatever. Um, and, um, yeah, there's a kind of grace in even being able to recognize that something sad is sad, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. But even like, not just sadness, but even the dumb things that we do as humans, like getting sidetracked while writing a novel because I am addicted to Instagram or Twitter, um, you can feel hopeless because of it and say like, okay, look how limited I am. I can't do anything. But if there's this wider scope of meaning, they're like, okay, yeah, I'm limited. And yet there's this higher ideal that I'm striving towards. And even though I fall short, like, I don't know. Like I got the the sense while reading this that even though, yeah, like you keep kind of, you don't get very far that morning while you're writing, you know that there's, you're, you're on your way to something that's important. And that, like, I don't know, like, that resonated with me because I feel that way. Like, some days it's like, wow, I accomplished nothing. What a piece of shit I am. And yet, that's not the end of the story because mm-hmm. it's not just me. There's, like, there's more to this picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and definitely there's there's um, there's something to be said for, like, um, like you were saying, these, these things like getting distracted or failing to live up to an ideal. Um, um, you know, they... they I guess I guess what I'm saying is there's a way of talking about these things like you know oh we're so distracted by our phones or like oh you know in this novel there's a poop scene and like yes. there's something holy or something like that about the poop scene and I'm not trying to do I mean there's a way of talking about these things where like you know you just say like yeah our depraved materiality is holy yeah. and I think I, I was reading something about maybe it was an interview with Atessa Mosfeg or or something like that and she's like she she says something I, something to the effect of like 
you know, or at least this is my memory of it. She's like, I wanted to talk about how like the anus is holy or something like that, you know, and like what yeah. shit is holy, you know. And to me, huh. okay. to me, to me, there's like it's almost like this, like this kind of like the way that people will like read Desaad or something like that and be like yeah. sort of fetishize this kind of darkness. But oh, to me, okay. sorry, no, 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 no. I'll, I'll say I thought about okay, Desaad because okay. <laughs> yeah. to me, to me, all that stuff can only be significant when it's infused with a perspective from outside of it, like. You know, if, 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 you know, yeah, if I, if you are just like a mouse, just kind of like reacting to stimuli on a screen, mm-hmm. that is bleak, you know, if you're struggling upward towards something and like kind of stumbling along the way, yeah, that's a different story, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I mean, first with the Tessa like, I feel like reading my year of rest and relaxation, this all, this, um, protagonist is like a kind of shitty person, but I don't know. There, there is a similar sense of like ritualism within the everyday because like she goes to the bodega to get her two coffees and you know watches the Whoopi Goldberg movies over and over again. It's like yeah, it's very mundane. She's again not a very compassionate, kind person, but you do feel like even within the limitation, the the sin that there's um, I don't know like there's something more here, and especially I don't know even like even with what you said about Desaad, like sure Desaad is a atrocious human being, but at least this is like this is a palia thing that Desaad maintains the um I guess the kind of spiritual legacy of France and of Europe because he's reacting against Rousseau and these very like yeah. these enlightenment philosophers who believe in the like the benevolence of human nature. Totally. It's like the rationalism. It's like no, like he's straight up satanic. And yet the satanic is a greater sign of the sacred than like enlightenment rationalism. Totally, right. totally, totally. I mean, I, 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 yeah, I think it's valuable for that reason exactly. Yeah. You know, where, where, where I, yeah, I'm totally not a rationalist. I don't, um, I don't have a sort of rosy view yeah. of like human, human reason or whatever. And so I think stuff like that is is very valuable and sort of. And and I think too, like you know, one of the reasons why novels in particular, um, are more likely to show that side than like you know, for example, like the, I don't know, like. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of like the opposite of that, you know, maybe someone just has like a beautiful, beautiful time and a beautiful world yeah. and, you know, God is good and yeah. da, 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 da. Is this, is that like sort of the, the novel is sort of like, um, just like inherent to the form is like, it's like the site of human folly or something yeah. like that, you know, where like, um, and so I think, I think, yeah, showing, because even, even books like Crime and Punishment, you know, which at the end have like a very didactic, like Christian conversion mm-hmm. essentially it's still like 550 pages of like a murderer wigging out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, so I think those things are, uh, yeah. And so anyway, so yeah, I think, I think there's, I didn't mean to like totally did. I haven't read my re- year of rest and relaxation, but um, I'll say it's worth it. Okay. Yeah. Right. It's, it's fun. It's a fun one, but yeah, I don't know. I have something about the, something at the, uh, the media surrounding this last one just totally, totally turned me off, but yeah. That's um, understandable. Yeah. Yeah. But no, so let's go back to the poop, um, one of the highlights, I think, of the novel. Because, I mean, yeah, some people are grossed out. I was fascinated because I have, like, a poop fixation. But it's, again, it's not just weird. Like, you do have a sense that, again, there's something ritualistic and there's something beautiful about the process and the... I mean, there's, like, the poop is a symbol of the limitation, I think, of human beings, that there's something gross about us and fallen, but... I mean, I was mentioning to Jordan before that there's this Jewish poop prayer. That's... Did, we, did you end up finding it? So, let's see. <laughs> it's, so, what is it? The prayer was first mentioned. No. I'm going to have to look for this. The potty prayer. Jewish values <laughs> online. Oh, here we go. Blessed are you, Hashem, our God, King of the universe, 
who created the human with wisdom and created within him many openings and many cavities. It is obvious and known before your throne of glory that if one of them were to be ruptured or one of them were to be blocked, it would be impossible to survive and to stand before you. Blessed are you, Hashem, the healer of all flesh, who acts wondrously. There's something Whoa. very wondrous about pooping. That's wild. Right. He says, and they imagine, they ask you to imagine if one of them were blocked, you would die. Yeah. Wow. So there's something there. But, I mean, but why? Why did you do the poop stuff? What's, what point did it serve for you? Um, to be totally honest, I just was thinking about, okay, this novel is taking place over the course of three hours. Mm-hmm. What generally happens over these, like, you know, three hours in a morning. And that was part of it. And so I just tried mm-hmm. to, um, it really was sort of just that. And then I just tried to write about it in a way um, that was, like, as literary and as interesting and compelling as possible. Um and so that was really it. There was no kind of like when I when I turned it into my editor, she was like, "People are going to ask you about this, and you know maybe the poop is like, uh, you know, a symbol for like I can't remember what she suggested, like you know, for writing itself or mm-hmm. for uh, you know the nature of self expression, or maybe it's a funny joke about X, Y, and Z." And I just didn't. Um, I mean, I tried to map certain like things into the poop section. Like there's a part where he is thinking about why the toilet paper is often more streaked on one side than the other. Yeah. And so, and so, and so, and so, you know, he sort of thinks like, um, maybe he's like applying pressure, you know, on one side more than the other, maybe because he, he brings his arm around the right side. Like he swipes it there a little more. And then he sort of, I think he remembers, he realizes something about the lengths of his like middle finger and his pointer finger and realizes that his like, middle finger is longer and so applying more pressure and so you know and but like but then um um you know and then he's he's so there, there are all there are thoughts like that you know um but but then there are there are thoughts where he is um connecting his uh his diet to like how like quote unquote clean yes and so yes. he has one idea about why this is the case and then he realizes that he's wrong about so the he eats on the ice right exactly yeah. so he thinks a clean diet equals clean poop he realizes that he's wrong because sometimes he eats pizza or whatever and then he yeah you know wipes clean and then so then he goes to the opposite thing and so i tried to map on like a sort of way of almost like a dialectical way of like you know um self-exploration or something like that or self-knowledge where like you know you think one thing you kind of realize that you're wrong um you know maybe you react against that and and think the opposite thing and then maybe um you know and then maybe there's there's you know the secret third thing or whatever you know and so um and so i tried to do all of this with that section um yeah, I, you know, and so it, it had less to do with the poop, you know, yeah. and just sort of, I was trying to, and then, and then too, the, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm thinking about this out, uh, you know, thinking about it now, mm-hmm. but like, also, maybe, you know, there ha- maybe it has something to do with this, this sort of like, the way that um, the narrator is just totally, almost like overly self-aware, you know, where it's like everything yeah. is sort of fraught with like a self-consciousness and like, you know, just, just applied that to like every, yeah. every sort of even automatic because yeah. like especially the part about life being like i think about these things and i wonder I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah no because also because i have ibs so like my poop is oh, problematic sure. yeah, you yeah. Know, i've had some trauma with that but i i have to think about like okay what am i eating how's it gonna impact me also like how many times i'm gonna have to wipe until it starts to irritate me right but again like is that i don't know is there Can some you, yeah you ever use a day this i've, I've got i got oh, it's hard i've tried okay. in europe i've tried but it's a little hard to figure out I got a bunch of emails from people being like, oh, you should use a bidet. 
Um, the the one I remember was Chloe, the writer Chloe Caldwell emailed me and said that I should. And then I was with my gym bro at Target after gym. One time we'd sometimes go to Target. And he was like, we passed one. Like they just had him out bidets. Really? In yeah. America? In Target, yeah. In, oh. in North Haven, the North Haven Target. We passed. He's like, dude, you got to change my life. Got to get one. And then I was like, really? And then he... Um, and then I, it was like 30 bucks or something like that. And I yeah. bought it and then he installed it for me. Like one that you put on top of the toilet. You like, it's like wedged between the, you like kind of take off the toilet yes. seat. You like screw okay. it into the whatever yeah. screws right there. You connect okay. it to the wall. He did it for me, so I don't really know. You connect it to the water line and then it works. Yeah. Because I've seen one of those at the apartment of an Armenian friend. Okay. Okay. And I was like, okay, maybe it's like a, well, they're not really European, but you know, maybe mm-hmm. it's that. The only other time I've seen one in the U.S. was at the Trump Taj Mahal in Atlantic City, like 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I never. I'm not even recommending it. By no, the way, I was just I curious. It's kind of complicated. What yeah, I do, it's, it's also just it's also just un-American. No, it is. It's against American traditional American values. That's right. Um, no, I mean maybe this is too much information, but I I wet the toilet paper first. With what water? What? Like if there's a sink right next to me, I'll wet it. What if the sink isn't right next to you? If it's that bad, I'll get up. The other thing, this is, <laughs> what do you? Okay, like, okay. I'll, yeah, like I'll just like shimmy, shimmy over. over. Yeah. The other thing, this is like this is when I'm getting gross. I like after I shower, I put Vaseline over there, mm. down there, because yeah, like because I poop so much and it does get irritated. So like I need to buffer it a little. Mm. But yeah, if I have a day, I don't know. They're weird. Fix me out. We can totally we can. No, man. I, I was, uh, we don't have to go further. I was just going to say, pretty far, we were talking about Augustine, though, yeah. earlier before this. And I learned, I think my wife, Nicolette, told me that um, that he had hemorrhoids so bad that he couldn't he couldn't even sit up sometimes. Oh, yeah, like he was I just laying that. up in bed. Anyway. Uh, there are definitely saint poop stories. I don't know. Anyway. But anyway, I'm, I'm legitimately, I'm, I'm not actually, it's like, uh, and my editor too, she was like, people, she was, we, we tried to cut it down a bunch, wow. but she was like, we did cut it down really? a little, okay. but she was like, she kept being like, people are going to ask you, and, and I just kind of like, maybe I got desensitized to it through the act of editing or whatever, but I'm really not that, not that interested in, in um, my next novel has no poop in it at all. Oh, <laughs> oh, wow. um, the only part that was a little gross was when the was spraying oh yeah, yeah. Was, i mean i laughed but i was like oh yeah. this is kind of nasty to like envision yeah my you might my, my ex i don't think this is yeah i had an ex who um was in like holistic healing school mm-hmm. and she uh there was like a few weeks where they were like talking about how your poop was a sign of your like overall health and, yeah and um but they were like for some reason weirdly fixated on whether or not it floated yeah, that's a thing. Okay. Yeah, that's definitely a thing. Yes, yeah, she was always tracking it, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I, like, when I first started working full-time, I had really bad problems, and they gave me all this medication until I told my therapist about it, because he's very holistic, and he was like, you really don't need medication. Like, this is a stress problem. Mm. Like, if you can manage your stress, your poop will be better, and it turned out to be very true. Mm. But, no, the one one more poop thing. Yeah. Um, have you ever seen Pasolini's 120 Days in Sodom? No. Okay. It's really creepy and gross. I don't recommend everyone watch it because it's really disturbing. One of the scenes involves a wedding feast, like a, a trans transvestite wedding feast, and at the feast they eat shit. Whoa. And 
than like most popular interpretation considering like the whole arc of the film is like consumerism sucks the sacred out of everything like to the point that humans become commodities and that we're sold shit and we're told to eat shit so he uses the the poop eating scene to like comment on you know the culture and i mean he was a marxist but ultimately it was like he started flirting with Christianity once again. He's realizing, okay, but there's no sacred, whether whether in like capitalism or you know materialist mm. Marxism. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. There's there could be that. Mm. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that connects here, but that's interesting. I would I would I would agree that um, um, capitalism tries to. Uh, I don't want to say the word capitalism. It's always such, no, a, it's it's always such, such a, a horrible thing when people are like, capitalism strange. does this and capitalism does that. But it's true. That I would, yeah, maybe like sort of like radical consumerism and like individualism certainly does that, you know, and uh, sort of uh, what are we good? Crony capitalism. Is yeah, like I mean, the free market as an, as like a worldview or the worldview it stems from, um, because it, like it's this claim of neutrality that like everything's neutral, you know, our will is neutral, like there's no account for original sin. And then ultimately, if you don't have any, um, I don't know, like any higher ideal driving the direction of how we produce and spend, then like, yeah, everything will turn to shit because of sin. Well, I was going to say, yeah, I mean, maybe the, maybe the, maybe the, 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 the deeper truth about, about, about um, um, you know, the market uh, selling you shit to eat is that um, not for their own devices, people want that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like not only, not only, not only, yes. not only do people want to like um, sell it to you, but then people want to happily sort of gobble it up you know and uh yeah. and that's a problem mm. do you eat clean like is that does that matter to you, mm. you not in like a neurotic uh yeah. like strict litigious way but but yeah i eat like pretty healthy i would say yeah like probably very healthy compared to yeah because i feel like there is this like i feel like the more i've progressed spiritually i've lost interest in artificial kind of foods and ingredients because I don't know, like the, um, what do they say, like the bliss point where like they put all these chemicals to try to, you know, make your taste buds go wild. Like, yeah, again, left to our own devices, we chase after these empty, shitty, pleasurable experiences. But then at a certain point, you're like, is there any substance here? I think, and I think that implies in terms of like our actual behavior as humans, but also what we eat. Mm-hmm. And I find myself like, I used to eat a whole bag of Doritos and now I'm like, oh my God, it's disgusting because like it's all chemicals and it's yeah. like, I don't know. That's okay. Also, if you don't eat that stuff for a little bit, like your your taste for it just goes away. No, I don't want it at all. Anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I eat a lot of sugar, but like natural sugar, not like artificial. Ray Pete thinks sugar is good. I, I I'm not sure. I don't eat a lot of sugar. I eat a lot of like meat and protein and yeah. greens and. Whatever. I think sugar makes people happier, so that's why. <laughs> nice. I mean, I'm definitely addicted, but anyway. All right. So moving on from poop and eating. Yeah, so I think what's interesting here, and I think like this kind of echoes the broader kind of movement of what some people call alt literature. Um, you're critical of a particular cultural discourse that is pretty dominant right now in the mainstream, but in a way that's very oblique. That's not like in no way reactionary or unintelligent, but it's it's mostly funny. And like it was very surprising for me to see these reviews of the book in again, these very mainstream outlets. So I don't know. It's um, it's like it gives me hope to see that it's possible to critique the cultural narrative without going into this like this dumb Fox News type of rhetoric, which is like yeah, 
I think it just fans the flames of you know the mainstream. But I don't know. I'm I'm curious to hear like first of all, like did you expect to receive the kind of um, recognition and uh, appreciation that you got from these more like mainstream outlets? No, I definitely didn't expect it. I mean, I my editor and my agent, and I think even after I did read stuff, like I mean, it seemed like it seemed like most people that had read the book were like sort of like you know kind of trying to prepare me for like they were sort of ominously predicting that there would be that it would be like uh, polarizing or yeah. whatever, and it it kind of just wasn't at all. You know what I mean? Like, and I and I don't know if that's. I mean, part of it is that like in literature, I am like you know if 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 you're writing in like, in, like in what is basically an ideological way where you're trying to make like fundamentally ideological points and stuff like this, you're kind of like, um, you know, you're just doing like propaganda or this sort of yeah. cheap shot type of type of thing. And I really tried to, to, to not do that. And so like, even you know, I'm, I, I was only interested in the culture war stuff insofar as it related to like, you know, um, the dynamics of resentment or like human mm-hmm. psychology or like, you know, even like our, our spiritual nature, you know, these kinds of things. And so like, it wasn't, um, like I'm not actually interested in like um, just like having out having a culture war. I don't think there's any really real winning yeah. there. No. I love I, I, I like art, and in, I mean that was the other thing too. Is like insofar you know I, I tried to mount somewhat of a defensive art in it. You know, yeah. where I think one of the worst things about um, um, the sort of current cultural moment is that it like you know there's no room for like for art in my opinion. Yeah, and this is something I said. Like I reviewed Fuckboy Sean Dora Conroe's book, which some people associate with this larger movement. And I was saying, like, there's this, this kind of wildy invent to what's going on here because, like, if you look at Wild, he really hated the kind of bourgeois, moralistic, sentimental um, just tone of the culture at that time. And instead of attacking it head on in this, like, propagandistic way, he used his humor. Like, he was super ironic and made people laugh. And sure, like, at a certain point, people got pissed off, but at least there's a certain credibility when you approach the culture first like with an appreciation for art with yeah art for art's sake as opposed to like art as a tool for your totally. propaganda totally. but also humor like humor right. has a way to break through the tension and make people say oh wait maybe i am like this like maybe i am an insufferable narcissist and i should reconsider yeah i'm like that well and i think and i think too like um i mean one of the one of the main one of the problems with um, the literary culture right now is it's, there's like a mirth drought. You know what I mean? Like people aren't, um, um, you know, I did a panel, I shouldn't talk about this, but I did a panel at the Broken Book Festival over the summer and the topic was laughter amid the ruins. Mm, and so, and so I thought that, um, uh, you know, it would be about humor and, and, and literature and, um, you know, the other panelists would be funny or whatever. Um, and I just didn't understand what the hell was going on. Like they'd be reading stuff and people yeah. would, would laugh I couldn't like tell what was funny. Um, it, it didn't seem very funny to me. And in fact, it started off and they said like the panel, this sort of colored the whole panel as they were like, you know, these three novelists have managed to write works of fiction in a world beset by, you know, climate change, the rising threat of fascism and blah, blah, blah. And they couldn't laugh at any of those things. Right. So like you could laugh, you could sort of like laugh, you know, um, you could, you could, you could laugh at, at, at jokes about like a bumbling white guy, or you could laugh about like kind of like weird, like nonsense. You know, um, yeah. but you couldn't laugh about things like climate change. You couldn't laugh about things like fascism. You couldn't laugh yeah. about anything serious, right? Um, not that you know. And, and so I think I think part of part of um, um, I think being able to to, to make jokes, um, you know, that, that 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 are rooted in a kind of truth is like incredibly important. And also, it's just fun. Like people people like to like to laugh. You know, they like to be charmed or whatever. 
I think it's just yeah. a good uh, yeah interesting this is random um, have you ever seen the show Rami on Hulu I've maybe heard of it okay now it's he's it's this guy who's Egyptian American from Jersey lives somewhere in the neighborhood now in Brooklyn um but no, basically his whole shtick as a comedian, both like in stand-up and off the show, is like he attacks all the hot button issues, but it's always like he'll he'll go there and like make fun of it, but he won't pick a side at all. Like you never know like what his actual position mm-hmm. is. And like people from all different ideological, religious points of view like find him hilarious because again, it's like it's humor for humor's sake. Like you're not trying to push anything. Is yeah. he able to? I mean, the other thing is that, like, I think um, a lot of people aren't funny, especially writers, because they can't laugh at themselves. Yeah. And I think, like, for me, like, you know, um, obviously the narrator is it's fiction and it's a novel, but like for me, like, you know, there's this way, you know, when I guess I guess this is you know the kind of humor that um, a lot of literary fiction or like you know writer types use now is one in which like the narrator is not implicated right mm-hmm. so like they can be a kind of contemptuous observer of what they think are various social ills and they can even try and snarkily poke fun at them yeah. but the, when the narrator is not implicated um it's kind of a very tense situation you know what i mean yeah. and, and people audiences readers but also like in general um you yeah you just end up with a, with a tense thing where um you know when people can laugh at themselves it puts everyone at ease and there's this kind of like um you can get to something realer than when someone's just yeah yeah no, and that's like that's the thing with like this self seriousness um, that parades itself as like virtuous and very moral is really vacuous because again if you're real with yourself you'll see you're the first one in need of being critiqued like totally. you are a sinner like mm-hmm. sure there may be systems out there that are problematic and you don't I don't know like not all of us are Hitler of course but. All of us are fucked up Not in yet. some way. Well, you we never know what some of these people say. But yeah, like to not be able to laugh at yourself is a sign that like you really don't understand how much you're implicated in the problem. Mm-hmm. And that's again, like that's one of the things I was saying about Sean's book is that sure it's narcissistic in a way, sure it's self-indulgent, but like who isn't narcissistic? Who isn't self-indulgent? And the fact that like he he said in an interview that he was trying to piss off these type of like literary establishment and college educated white boys who, you know, get on their moral high horse and virtue signal. And there are all these reviews written by these, you know, elite white guys who are like, oh my God, Sean's such a narcissist. And it's like, okay, but you're the first one to be like that. So why, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. But then on the other side, I mean, I, I have to bring this up that Jordan Castro appears in the novel, who's not you, but it's your name. And a lot of the, so he's like what like an internet sensation. All these viral videos, a lot of things echo Jordan Peterson in a way. Um, and what's funny about Peterson, as much as he presents himself as you know the antithesis of the woke culture and the victimization and all that, the fact that this guy has no sense of humor is always seems very like melancholic and miserable is a sign that okay, like just as much one as one side may be kind of problematic, the reactionary position really. It's the the other side of the same coin, and I was I was saying to you this this before that like in the the debate with Zizek that there's a point where Zizek is like I'm trying to like don't you see I'm trying to make you laugh like I'm trying to make a joke like you mm-hmm. take yourself way too seriously mm-hmm. even if you have all your big ideas and you you think you're right like the fact that you can't joke is a sign that something's missing in your ideology mm-hmm. you know so I don't know I'm. Uh, I, I want to like then I want to go from I think like the Jordan the antithesis of the Jordan Castro 
character is this Eric guy. Mm. Um, yeah, say, first of all, say a little bit like, who is this Eric character? What are you trying to do with him for people who haven't read it yet? Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, I'm just thinking about, about what you said about it. We can go back to that. No, no, it's fine. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah, the, the, the yeah, so the, in, the, in the novel, there's a uh, there's this guy Eric who the narrator starts kind of like uh, chimping out about. Like he's the narrator starts like writing, you know, about his his friend. Um, and I think Eric was kind of like a uh, stand-in for maybe like your um, I don't know, typical kind of like uh, elite literary like kind of like lib or something or at least the new kind that has like emerged in the last however you know since 2014 or something like that and it was just like a lot of you know sort of a lot of people that i know but also um you know maybe like a former version of myself or something like that and this like um this way in which kind of um um yeah people can use quote unquote uh virtue to mask resentment or whatever you know there was a lot of i think for me there was a lot of people in my life um who were had suddenly become good people you know what i mean it's like me too started happening yeah. and um you know a lot of the social justice movement sort of uh, gained a lot of cultural and social capital and then suddenly you know the worst guys ever became 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 just great people overnight because they had the right opinions um and they used those as sort of like weapons of resentment you know against against um people close to, you know against yeah. against whoever and so i think um yeah he's kind of like the the the, the kind of that but he also he also serves as like a um uh a scapegoat for the narrator sort of because he's more successful than the narrator and this kind of thing so yeah yeah i mean eric's interesting i think again for me on a personal level to see i feel like there is this um i don't know there's this psychoanalytic tone towards the narcissistic virtue signaler that like there was a certain point for me during i guess like the whole early stages of covid and the protests or I had to look at the fact that a lot of my moral posturing was a projection of insecurities that I had mm-hmm. that, um, I don't know, like on, on the psychological note, there is a turning point for me where I realized like most of my life I was exposed to like CBT and this very, very therapeutic, like let's deal with what's on the surface and, you know, try to um, alleviate your suffering as opposed to digging deeper and asking like what's behind all these complexes. How is it part of some bigger cosmic struggle? Which I think like Jung definitely gets into that. Um, but I don't know. Like it's it was very liberating for me to be able to say, hey, yeah, like I'm really narcissistic and I post things on the internet about social issues because I want to be affirmed, I want to be validated. And there are certain wounds in my life from my past that are unresolved. Maybe I should focus more on that before I go blabbering about whatever social issue and how my position is so righteous. Mm-hmm. Um and yet there are many people who really just continue doing that without any any awareness of, like, why do I do this? Like, how is this fulfilling some kind of hole I may have, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I think, so when I was, when I was younger, like, really young, maybe 11 or so, I was, like, obsessed with punk music. Mm-hmm. And so I would, like, write these, like, political, like, essays, I guess, okay. like, in my room. And I was, like, reading, like... Emma Goldman and Karl Marx yeah, and Peter Kropotkin, Kropotkin yeah. I guess I say, you know, these like Russian anarchists and this kind of thing. And, and, um, and, and I, um, was like a total kind of tyrant, uh, you know, with my friends. Like I had this, I had a tote bag at oh, one no, point. A tote bag. Listen, listen, but listen, this is even before the, I was, I was like 12 or 13 or something like that. 
know, I was really young and I, I had like a the tote bag. I think it's called the Atria Group. It's one of these like huge uh, companies that owns like every other company. They own Coke. They own, you know, maybe Marlboro. And I'm not really sure, right, anymore. Um, back then I, I, I knew for sure. But, but it's just like this, this like way, you know, like the meme of the guy pointing at all the pictures with the dots connecting everything. And um, and I would like scold my friends for like using any of their products and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think um, um, and so I was like, you know, and it gave me um, the ability to sort of point outward at the world and say, if the world was different, you know, then everything would be better. If the world would only conform itself to my will, yeah. then everything would be good. And but but because these systems are so big and so vast and so like you know um, you know they they infect every single part of human life and so on. You know the real the, yeah. the, 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 the you know they're 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 probably not going to change. And so it, what it gave me was like a way to justify all of my personal failings and to just point the finger at everyone around me and say the reason why I'm I'm suffering, the reason why my life sucks, or whatever, is because of all of you and because of these systems that I it's not my fault. And I think um, eventually, like I just sort of got um, humbled by by life, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and so that was sort of the impetus for me because I'm doing that some of that deep, like I guess, quote unquote. Maybe say it's psychoanalytic, but like spiritual, sort of like searching, you know, what yeah. I mean? and sort of like mm-hmm. from that perspective of of like humility, or of, of, get, of get, getting beaten down in ways that were like undeniably my fault, um, and then also had that sort of like radical leftism offering nothing in the way of of the power that can help me overcome these things, you know. Then, then, yeah, because huh. I'm I'm trying to find this part in the book where you you basically like bring up this point about people who claim to care so much about humanity like oftentimes don't give a shit about real humans oh yeah that's the max max scheller yes yes and he says scheller has a great piece on nietzsche and resentment have you ever read that i read his book i read his book called resentment yeah yeah or resent resentment or whatever yes and uh it was brilliant yeah and and but in it yeah he has a line about how the shift from the love of neighbor to the yes. love of mankind is really born of resentment it's, it's 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 hatred because i can love mankind and hate hate everyone around me you know what i'm saying like it's like yeah. this violent I mean, abstraction i mean that's hitler and all the mm-hmm. you know all the big names yeah um no but i think like there there comes this fundamental point in our maturity or like in our growth of in maturity where like we have to ask do I actually live up to these ideals that I claim to uphold? Like, if I claim to be such a humanitarian, like, do I love the concrete people that I see every day, or am I a big asshole? Um, and I think the problem with a lot of, the, again, the mainstream discourse we're seeing is that it kind of absolves you from having to have that point of confronting yourself because you get rewarded for being very vocal and very loud about other people's sins. But to look at yourself and say, hey, like, I'm pretty shitty sometimes. I'm very selfish. Unless, I mean, if you do it in a performative way, sure, maybe you'll get some points. But to really reckon with your brokenness, and, no, it's, like, yeah. it's not a thing. Well, especially in a way that doesn't, um, um, in a way that can sort of cross ideological lines. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, if, if you know, it's, it's, it's one thing to say, like, you know, look, I'm a sinner. I'm bad too. Like I contribute to racialized capitalism yeah. and I, you know, contribute to the patriarchy and I, you know, like it's one thing to do that. But if you say something like, you know what I'm saying? That sort of yeah, crosses. Like the white yeah. people who like own up to, you know, their white fragility and their, and, it's, again, and some it's, of that, and some, yeah, yeah some of that, you know, it, it, it's strange because it's like some of that stuff does contain within it a kernel of truth. No, like, yeah. I, like it's like, it's like Absolutely. I do contribute in various ways to various, you know, webs of suffering. Yeah. But, but, but like, um, you know, 
but to use that kind of like insight um, to then just like build a weapon to scapegoat yeah. others or whatever is like is not not you know it's this very sinister move you know on the part of yeah yeah but there's something about the public nature of those confessions because like I I've seen it like especially again during summer of 2020 I see a lot of these white people who are you know I am, I admit I am part of the problem and right. I am fragile as a white and like yeah me too you know I I acknowledge these things but. The fact that you're making a show of it isn't that you still trying to um, gain validation um, off of the like you're you're still using people of color to get validation because you're saying like oh look at how much I contribute to your oppression but the fact that you want to publicly talk about it like you're still trying to benefit I don't know yeah that, that's the vibe I kept seeing well there's yeah it's strange I mean yeah there's a couple of um, I mean I, I certainly um, yeah, I'm thinking of a couple of things. One is that um, just that I, I remember remembering this now. I, I, you know, at that time I started listening to. I remember very vividly being at Gold's Gym in College Park, Maryland, listening to the audiobook of uh, what was Robin DiAngelo's yeah, White Fragility. White Fragility. Oh, right, right. Duh. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, and I, and I was like, and I, and I was like, I'm going to do my due diligence, and just like not like as a white, but I was like, I'm just going to basically listen to like the the um, who I considered the enemy, you know. And I and I and I and I put it on. I was at the gym, and I was like, this would be a good time to listen to it because. Oh, it'll get me chimped point. out ready to you know whatever and I, I i got so mad within the first like two pages that i just turned it off and never listened because it's this like it's this horrible like psychological yeah. abuse manipulation tactic where it's like you know pay attention to how you're feel you know how you're feeling when you hear it's basically this thing where it's like if you, if you respond to what i'm telling you in any way other than submission you're proving the thesis you know yeah. what i mean i mean the first problem with her is that like why are you as a white person telling but there's good money, man. As much as, I don't know, like, I've had to confront those questions in my relationships with real people, mm. not, you know, people in the abstract. And I think that's the main thing is that, again, humanity versus actual humans. Like, you can, you know, atone for your sins against this amorphous blob of people, but... In terms of like, I don't know, my where have I been fragile when my friends confront me about something that I have done? Like, when you're responding to yeah. a real human who you have a history with, you have a sense of responsibility to. Mm. Like, that's when I feel like, yeah, you need to own up. And going on Twitter and posting about it, like, that's not the same thing. No, it's not. I mean, it, it's 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 you know, I mean, I think about it in my in my like personal relationships and stuff. Like, it's, it is very difficult to. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of another word besides repent. It's very difficult to like sort of be wrong mm -hmm. and to like mend a, re a relationship yes. and to sort of like, you know, humble yourself before another and like ask for forgiveness or whatever. And I'm thinking, I was thinking about like this, these, these public displays and it doesn't really happen anymore. So it's sort of just like, yeah. you know, during, at least not that I see. Um, um, but like, you know, I, I, I was reading the other day about how in the early church confession used to be done in front of the church, yep. like the whole church. Yes. Um, you know, and so there, the, and I know a lot of people like to place, they'll be like, wokeness is just like Christianity, but mm -hmm. da da da. But to me, like, um, you know, there is, you know, there is a need, there is spiritual freedom to be found in like confessing your sins, you know, um, um, but, but, but if it's not in the context of sort of, of like grace and like, you know, real people in a loving community and this kind of thing, yeah. then it, then it, then it becomes totally demonic because, 
um, no matter how much you confess, right? They just beat you, beat you, beat you. You know, so there's yeah. no, there's no grace. There's no forgiveness. There's no even yeah. real repentance. You know, and that's the difference. That it was if you did it in public, it was a community who you you have a history with, like mm-hmm. you have actual relationships. It's not the Twitterverse. It's not Some, yeah, exactly. You know, anonymous whatever. It's not, and also um, it's not an angry. It's not like a bunch of angry people being like yeah. confess or whatever. It's like it's a totally different thing. You know, we did this yeah. amazing. I, I told you I've been going to the Orthodox Church. We did this on. Um, I don't remember what it was when it was, but it was like a, uh, a vesper service. I think after the liturgy, where maybe you did this as, as in, in Greek Orthodox, where like that past life. What's, yeah, yeah, yeah. In your in your in your in your past life, but where like you went around the church. Oh yeah, you know what I'm talking That's about. That's Forgiveness Sunday. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was like so yeah. beautiful. You know, this, this, here's the thing with Forgiveness Sunday. So for those who haven't been initiated. Um, yeah, so it's one of the Sundays before Lent, mm-hmm. yeah. where you, after the liturgy, so everybody, at least in the Greek church, everyone lines up, and you take turns going up to everyone in the church, and like what we do is like you give them a hug, and you say, I'm sorry, forgive me. In, 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 in this one, they were like, uh, you said like, um, how did it go? You said, you said like, forgive me forgive me and then you say like god forgives or something and then you kind of do like a cheek kiss yeah yeah um okay this so (laughs) i just thought it was kind of yeah i mean i have baggage here because with the greeks hopefully i don't have any like orthobro listeners i mean orthobros aren't even like really orthodox they're just like larpers but Real Greek people, like, they're not, like, super religious. It's like you do that because it's, you know, that's your heritage. It's a ritual we do. So I think, yeah, like, it's symbolic. It's a very beautiful thing. But, like, unless you actually... Within church communities where it's, like, a real community where you actually do stuff together and, like, you've actually sinned against your fellow parishioner and you've said something fucked up to them or you should talk to them behind their back, like... I, I do know some communities where they actually have like intentional parish communities where they do these public like asking forgiveness and it can be very powerful because like if you if everyone knows you talk shit about this person or like you did something really bad and in front of everyone you're like hey I did this specific thing and it's wrong and I'm sorry and I'm asking in front of everyone but again it goes back to what you're saying it's not like yeah you better confess you better you know because mm. we're gonna beat you if you don't mm. it's like no like yeah you did wrong but. There's this love that embraces you. It's much bigger than your sin. Right, right. So yeah, in principle, the forgiveness someday could be great. Yeah, it's all. It's always. It's always a. Um, it's always a. Uh, you know, there, there are a million ways in which these like traditions that get passed down can just become sort of like dead letter, sort of like uh, yeah. you know, um, just just dead mode. You know, where people are like enacting these like disembodied forms or something like that that aren't yeah. like existentially integrated or whatever and I mean I I and so you know any kind of thing like that runs the risk of, of devolving into that you know um, I mean even 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 you know when we, when we did it, the guy next to me afterward was like forgive me for wanting to get the hell out of here <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is like pretty funny you know but like um um yeah yeah but anyway so I think I think some of these so I think there's there's some um you know, some truth when people talk about like place, like, uh, I guess, quote unquote, wokeness in the lineage of Christianity. But like, to me, um, it's not, some people will then be like, um, you know, that means that any kind of like, you know, morality in this thing is wrong or any mm-hmm. kind of um, attempts to like, you know, apologize or, or reconcile your, you know, your sin or whatever. Yeah. And I think for me, um, 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 yeah, these things are, um, you know, it's, it's just, a, it's just a sort of a malformed, 
version of, of, of something that could potentially be good and yeah yeah and what's also interesting about eric is his like staunch anti-natalist position it's oh yeah like there's the perfect amount of kids to have in the world mm. it's like you see that um that was a straight up post from from one of my old oh, friends. Yeah, I've seen those all the time. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But there's like that's where you see there's something very anti-humanitarian here, and it's like you sacrifice humans for the sake of humanity. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like why is it that we can't see that when we like when we say those kinds of things? Like why don't we see how the cognitive dissonance of it all? I don't know. Like I just feel like we get very blinded by this um, this moralism, this Puritan kind of. I guess we're afraid of being damned, ultimately. Like, we don't want to go to hell. Like, social hell. Yeah. So we say these things, which are really messed up, but... And I, I think... Yeah, I mean, it's... it's Yeah, there's 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 definitely um, a lot of... I mean, there, there are all kinds of reasons why people don't... Uh, aren't, aren't aware of their cognitive dissonance. And I think, for, I'm sure myself included, you know, yeah. where it's like... Um, there are just all kinds of defense mechanisms kind of built up in the psyche or in the soul that kind of... Are very difficult to chip away at and very difficult to see you know mm-hmm. and so it's um yeah and it's not it's not unique to any to any one one ideology or any one you know type or something like that um but the antinatalism stuff i mean yeah i do think there's like a, a sort of profound hatred of life kind of lurking beneath the surface of contemporary culture yeah no and so like what we were saying before about this point where you confront your own resentment and your own narcissism on the flip side is this whole like responsibility pilled culture. Like I'm going to lift myself up by my bootstraps. I'm going to stop complaining. And like again, from my own experience, I see how much taking that step is crucial, but can go back in a very like self destructive and immoral kind of direction. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I want to hear from you. Like, so if this this narcissistic resentment kind of pill culture is not it. And the responsibility pill is also not it. I don't know. How do people move forward from this, these these conflicting discourses we're caught between? Yeah. Well, one, I, th- I think I think that there is, you know, I think that everybody has like a responsibility, sort of existential and individual responsibility, regardless of your context, to sort of step into your own life and yeah, to take responsibility for um you know for yourself and the, your, your loved ones and so on it doesn't mean that like you know um there aren't systems that are affecting you it doesn't mean that like you know um you're not you know involved or sort of tied up invariably in like a web of social mm-hmm. relations and community and stuff like that um but it does but there is at least for me like you know um there can be something very empowering about saying you know i'm not going to blame other people even when they're at fault yeah you know what i mean like i'm not gonna because because i to be to me like resentment is to be like avoided like the plague if possible you know like to me resentment yeah. kind of instantly corrodes and instantly deceives it's kind of this 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 sick um you know brain worm or something like that um that like when it gets you mm-hmm. you just become a mom you know you just become delusional and i think um that can often happen with just blaming, you know, other 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 people, um, because we have so many defense mechanisms built up. Like I can blame people for things that you know. It's it's like it's like the classic thing of like the guy you know who has a shitty day at work and comes home and like yells at his wife about, yeah. about how the, the meat's overcooked or something. You know, it doesn't happen already, but from the movies or something, yeah. you know. And, um, um, but um, but so I think right. So I think I think there's there's this there's like a, a backlash, the kind of victimism where where people are saying, you know, especially like manosphere Jason people are saying, yeah. Get, get strong, get rich, 
you know, uh, be a, a man, stand up, you know, whatever. Stand up with your back straight. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. exactly, you know, and it's, and it's like, um, but I think that the, the, I think there's, I, I hold two things in my head, and, and, and one is that, like, you know, um, I'm, I take full responsibility, you know, um, I guess, I guess, for, sorry, I'm, I'm kind of jumbling around. One of the things that I've thought about is that a lot of the responsibility pill types, especially like Western mm-hmm. kind of individualist yeah. people will say, you know, Christ said, pick up your cross. They sort of use, use the cross. They say, Christ said to pick up your cross and, you know, take responsibility. But like what they don't re- remember about that story is that Christ actually took on the sins of the world. Yeah. Christ didn't say, oh, you know, I'm being responsible for my sins. He said, I'm being responsible, you know, I'll take responsibility for everyone's sins and you should pick up your cross and follow me. And so what that would mean, and Father Sarah from Rose actually has a, has a, has a great, you know, you know who that is? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not wholeheartedly endorsing him. Okay. Oh God, but, he, but he, but he has like a great line about like, you know, regarding everyone else as angels and yourself as a worse sinner. And okay, yeah. maybe that's an overstep, overstep, overstatement. But to me, it's this weird thing where it's like, you know, um, our sins aren't, and our and our faults aren't totally separable from one another. They can even be, you know, um, the effects of, of of my behavior can 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 spread out into generations. If I'm a horrible father and and my son turns out a certain way because I wasn't there or something like that, you know, then like I bear some responsibility for that. Yeah. But at the same time, if if if, if you know, if he, I don't have a son, God willing, one day. But like you know, if but he but but you know, if if he, if he spends his whole life blaming me and not taking responsibility for his own yeah. life somehow, then that's a trap as well. And so it's this weird. It's like a both and scenario where yes. it's like you can be simultaneously a victim and responsible. Not responsible for your victimization, but responsible for your yeah. for your for your um, um, for your actions for, for how you respond to that victimization. Yeah, and this is. Um... That's, this is the thing with the responsibility pill, the manosphere, that it presumes that we have the power exactly. to take responsibility for ourselves and also like to pretend that we're not victims. Like I have been victimized by people. Like people have inflicted injustices yes. upon me, starting with my own parents. And it's not that I forget that I've been hurt by these people. It's that there's mercy. It's like Yes, you hurt me, objectively speaking, but I recognize that there's this greater, like, you're not defined by this thing you did to me, like, that you're loved first by God, but that I can love you, even though you don't deserve it necessarily. And that me picking up my cross, picking up my bootstraps, it's not my efforts, the recognition that I'm loved. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think this is for, like, the need for community, to rely on people, which is not to say, like, um, I put my responsibility off onto other people, but I share it. Like there has to be this sense that my my agency is shared with others in this communal kind of setting. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, if I'm just lifting myself up, I'm going to fall again. Totally. It's never going to work. Well, and it's also just this this bizarre, you know, individualism that is kind of like has sort of seeped into so much, especially in America. You know, yeah. so much so much of our thinking like is is just like it's just been totally corrupted and corroded by this kind of individualism where like suddenly you know, the, the prevailing wisdom is like, is, you know, this weird idea, like my parents have nothing to do with me yeah, or something like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where it's, or, or whatever, like we're, to, you know, or, 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 the, yeah. or, 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 or like, I'm just this kind of like atomized, yeah. um, you know, self or something like that operating independent of any history mm-hmm. or family or That anything. goes back to this whole like CBT narrative, like, because we want to oust Freud, like 
we totally forget that our psyches are shaped by the people who brought us into well, the world. Also, 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 CBT is good for like if you're having a if you're having like thin problems. Yeah, no, it's but I mean, it's, it's not you know, useless at all. But but, it, but like, but it's not good if you're having problems that go very deep. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because um, it's not a behavioral thing yeah. fundamentally, um, or like a even like a thinking thing. You know, there are problems that sort of precede thought. You know, yeah. that, which is which? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, and I, I think like this is ultimately what's like really helpful about the novel is that okay, he's making fun of these, you know, these virtue signalers, these victimhood uh, addicts, whatever, and yet he doesn't. Um, He's able to make fun of himself and realize, like, okay, but I can't even, like, stay off of Twitter for five minutes. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think the humor thing is the first step to recognizing, like, hey, I'm not, I'm not perfect. Um, sure, maybe I've been victimized by others, but also I've done messed up things to other people. So, like, I got to laugh at myself. But also there, I think there is this, like, very implicit sense of grace, specifically with, like, the, the beauty, the sacredness of these everyday kind of rituals and you even say it at the very end when he's in the forest, like you, he has this sense of like the goodest of all goods, mm. which I guess like in an Aristotelian sense is the summum bonum, like the ultimate source of goodness, which allows us to be free to say, hey, like I messed up. I didn't get anything done on my novel today, but there is this higher good that I'm seeking and that, you know, along this journey, I'll find my way. Um, and ultimately, I'm not alone in the universe. Like it's not just me and my willpower and my strength, but mm-hmm. I think that's, yeah, like it's in a very subtle way becomes very hopeful without like preaching something, mm. you know. I'm glad that comes through. Yeah, I appreciate all of your, all of your thoughts about it. I'm like, like um, it's nice to hear you talk about it. Yeah. And I did want to ask, Kierkegaard does make an appearance. Oh, here. yeah, yeah. I love Kierkegaard. Yeah. I'm curious why. Like, what is it about Kierkegaard? I mean, one. I mean, he he's also a great ironist. You know, yeah. he's 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 funny and witty and 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 all of that. Um, but two, um, you know, and and I mean, one of the things that you talk about was sort of trying to be a Christian in Christendom. You know, you mm-hmm. like how how can one be a Christian when they're surrounded by you yeah. know Christians? It's sort of this funny like thing of like you know. Um, I think I think I guess I guess for me, um, Kierkegaard's like kind of um, and all the Christian existentialists really, um, they kind of address the problems and the the, the, the sort of like um, questions that I have and stuff sort of head on in a way that like resonates personally one of the, one of these great he has a great um, a great in works of love he I was just which I was just rereading he has a great passage where he talks about and it's related to the novelist actually because in the novelist um, the narrator uh, remembers how um, Kierkegaard's like first publication was a criticism of Hans Christian Andersen's novels mm-hmm. and he says that he's not a real novelist because his novels don't have a life view Okay. And so, yeah. and so he says that, like you know, uh, Hans Christian Andersen might ask a question like, "Is life really meaningful?" And this question can like spread out indefinitely, and it, it ends up in these like fragmented poetic moods, is what he says. Um, but a better question would be one like, um, "How can I live my life such that it is actively meaningful?" Because it because it implies a sort of active disposition and like a task. Yeah. And in works of love, um, I was like a couple of nights ago um, reading this great passage where he talks about how um, so many like philosophers and thinkers and writers um, are like the Pharisee who says like, "Who's my neighbor?" You know, and Christ says, "Love your neighbor." And they say, "Who's my neighbor?" And he, and he says that like, you know, the Pharisee is probably hoping that Christ, you know, will go on this long-winded, 
you know, explanation, or maybe they'll go back and forth, and maybe they'll come to the conclusion that, yeah, you can never really know who your neighbor really is, and it is kind of just relative, and, you know, this kind of thing. And he says, but instead, Christ answers questions in a way um, that, 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 that traps the asker in a task. And so, oh, like, okay. you know what I'm saying? And yeah. so, like, it, and so, like, instead of, like, engaging in this, um, because ultimately you can ask questions that are motivated by the desire to just shirk responsibility, yeah. you know? And so, it like, like what theologians do. Yes, exactly. That's exactly, yes, 100%, right. And theology yeah. is right with that, exactly. And Especially so, moral theologies, which dude. is what I studied, yeah. Ugh. I'm very good at putting off responsibility. Right, exactly. But <laughs> so even, like, think the rich young man, because he's like, what do I have to do to get eternal life? Right. He's like, okay, sell everything. He's right. Like, wait, no. <laughs> right, exactly. right, exactly. You know, yeah. and, it's, and so it, like, instantly traps him in the task, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, it, and, and, so, and, and so, like, to me, like, the way that Kierkegaard, um, I, so I am, I, you know, he speaks into my cowardice, I guess. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And he speaks uh-huh. sort of into my, like, um, you know, he also, in writing his various, you know, using his, like, different pseudonyms and, and different things, yeah. like, he sort of, like, understands um, a lot of the different, like, perspectives and, and, and a lot of different sort of, like, modes of being or whatever that I've sort of fallen in. You know, like, I, yeah. I, I guess I guess basically he just hits for me. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, in, in, in a way that's, like... Um, not many others do, you know. Yeah. Um, Dostoevsky is the exact same. Where, yeah. like, for for me, like, he like can address. Mm-hmm. He just speaks into my, you know, idiocy and, and my like. I don't know. Just I, I read it and it feels like a revelation. You know. Um, yeah. Yeah, and one of the things that I, when I would teach Kierkegaard, I would always juxtapose him with Augustine. Because in a way, mm-hmm. they're both Christian existentialists dealing with the abyss and the brokenness, the limited and the, the finite, whatever. What's different about Augustine is that his main point of reference when understanding, like, who is this infinite being? It's always relationships with people. Like, it's always these encounters, starting with his mother, then Marcus Victorinus, and then... I don't know, but he's always like referring to like God's grace operating through actual people and relationships. Whereas Kierkegaard, I feel like, is super in his head, super abstract, and it's like he's talking about the same concepts. But I don't know, it's it's different when like going back to what we're saying, you're responding to an actual concrete person in front mm-hmm. of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he was weird. Um, I actually thought of him when you mentioned the um, the psychoanalyzing thing yeah. with the Eric character because. Um, his nickname, do you know about this? When he was a kid, his nickname was Fork. No. They called him Fork. And like if you Google Kierkegaard nickname, it just comes with a picture and just says Fork next to it. Because he, because I guess when he was a kid, um, he could like see straight to your like personal problems or something like your site and and just cut straight to the core of you with like a biting insult or something like that. And so he, so he'd poke at you, which is why they call like, you know, which is why they call him Fork, I guess. Interesting. Yeah. Why yeah. just call him Knife? Because he doesn't want to kill you. It, it, to, like, yeah, I don't know. It could yeah. also, I guess, be like a translation thing. You know, I don't really know. Yeah, but it's, maybe it's, Danish Forks are more deadly. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, I, uh, but yeah, I love him. I don't know. Um, yeah. Here, Kagar. Okay. All right, so let me ask, do you have any plugs before we wrap up, any things you want people to check out, whether it's your stuff, your platforms, or other people, anything? Um, Kierkegaard Works of Love is a pretty good book. Yeah, Um, the novelist. I mean, it's not, I want to plug my wife's novel, but it's not, you can't order it yet. It's called Bitterwater Opera. So look out for it. Look out for that. Um, 
I might be a, that might be it for now. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, Jordan, thank you. Thank you for coming yeah, on. Yeah, thank this you. Fun. Yeah, definitely. Okay.